words that we've heard already this morning um, from Isaiah and from Galatians 1 were not pleasant words. They were hard words. And they, they reflect, in part, some of the hard words that John is going to say, um, not Jesus, but John, uh, here in John 12. Uh, we've got uh, verses 36b through 43 in mind right now. So, let us hear the word of our God. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn that I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's pray. Father, remind us this morning that apart from your grace, we are blind. That because of sin, our understanding was darkened. That our thinking was futile. But thankfully, you have not left us to our own devices, to our own thinking. But you have sent your Son to exegete you, to reveal, to interpret you, that we may come to know you, trust you, and love you. Work by the Spirit this morning to help us see the Son and therefore to see you more clearly in the Scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Amy's not here. She's in the nursery. But she would testify that I have experienced a, a minor level of consternation lately as I have been having a, a long ongoing sort of discussion with one of my old friends with regard to the Flategate. I am not here to talk to you about football, okay? You're welcome. <laughs> what I want to talk to you about is the fact of that we don't agree and we're looking at the same evidence. We're looking at the same report put together by this uh, lawyer's office. And we're reaching very different conclusions based on these findings. On page 268, I believe, it mentions that the conclusions reached by the report are based on certain assumptions and presuppositions. And that is why my friend and I disagree on what the report actually means. Presuppositions and assumptions. He believes one thing about it, and I believe something else about it. 
And here in John 12, we're faced with the reality that these people are hearing the same things, they are seeing the same things, but they are coming to radically different conclusions about those things which are rooted in their presuppositions and assumptions and a little bit more. Okay. Our big idea this morning is that giving glory to Jesus receives glory from God. That's really what a lot of this is about. The words glory keep showing up in this passage, just as unbelief keeps showing up in this passage, and they have something to do with each other. Let's start with the reality that spiritual blindness refuses to see the power and truth of Jesus. Jesus, who is the light. And we remember from last week uh, what Jesus said, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And upon saying that, what does Jesus do? Jesus, who is the light. He departs. He leaves. It's something like a living parable, so to speak, or living metaphor. He withdraws from public. Now, this does not mean that he went all Saddam Hussein and you know was is hiding in a little hole in the earth, but it just means that he withdrew from, from public areas, went most likely to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house, and kind of stayed there for a little while out of the public eye. That's all that it means. But Jesus withdrew. The light pulled back. And John, through the rest of this passage, addresses the unbelief of the crowd, the leaders, and everyone else. Now, this is all John speaking. But John, in the power of the Holy Spirit, is applying the Scriptures to this particular circumstance Basically, the circumstance of all who refuse to believe in Christ. Let's keep in mind as we look at this, though, who were these people? They're not godless heathen people. They're religious people. They were faithful members, most of them, to the synagogue. They probably had much of the Torah memorized or at least knew the Big Ten Commandments. If you ask them, they would say, if you ask them, do you believe in God? They would say, of course I believe in Jehovah. Of course I do. Humbling, if we think about it. The power of self to deceive. And we must be careful. We're going to, in a sense, point a finger at them, but let's make sure that we're not guilty of the same thing that they are guilty of. Because remember, they're religious people. They believed, so they said, the Old Testament, which we say we believe. Now, John says that Jesus had done many signs. He includes some of these signs. There are seven of them uh, within the, the course of this particular gospel account. There are many others that are found in the other gospel accounts. And as John notes at the very end of his gospel, there are many more that could have been written, but that aren't written. And so he had done many signs. It's one of those fun. It's a 
perfect tense for those of you who like grammar, which means maybe one of you, okay? Like gra- two of you like grammar, okay. Past action, present result. That's basically the idiot's guide to the perfect tense, okay? I'm an idiot, I need the idiot's guide to the perfect tense, okay? And so what this means is that these things that he did didn't then vanish, so to speak, but they had continuing results. I think the one that would not be would be the wine, the water turned into wine because they drank the wine and they went the way of all things, okay? But the blind man still could see. Lazarus, raised from the dead, still alive at the, not now, obviously, but when John is talking about this. The crippled man, the man who had been crippled for, I think it was 39 years, he could still walk. It wasn't as though these people had lapsed back into their former condition, but they remained healthy because Christ had made them whole. Girlfriend number three, for those of you who count, one of which is not here right now. Before I met her, her father was into the Word of Faith movement. Anything out of Tulsa, Oklahoma was good in his mind, bad in my mind. And so she ended up going to a Benny Hinn crusade at one point, and she wore glasses. And, uh, you know, there's the, the general, you know, healing thing that happens. I don't know. I haven't been to one of them. It's been a while since I've watched on TV. But she thought for a while that her eyes had been healed. And she didn't wear her glasses for a few hours. And then she wasn't sure what happened, but she needed her glasses again. These things that Jesus did, these signs that he did, were not like that. They were abiding and they continued. That person's life was forever changed by the action of Jesus. It was not something that slowly faded away like a shot of cortisone for a bad back. Okay? And despite this, I mean, they could go find the blind man. They could go find the crippled man. They could go find Lazarus. They could talk to him. Despite this, they still didn't believe. They had a persistent state of unbelief. It's not just they didn't believe then, but they still continued not to believe. Despite the signs that Jesus had given, they are characterized in a way similar to that of the Exodus generation. In Deuteronomy 29, it says in verse 2, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have all seen that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. You've seen them all. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Hey, that sound a little familiar? And so uh, they perceived these things, so to speak, with their eyes. They saw, they benefited from all of these things and the fact that they were, were sent out of, they were able to leave slavery and Egypt, but they didn't quite grasp what it all meant. They struggled. Is the problem the sign? No. 
Paul does something similar in Romans 7 when he talks about the law. The law is good. The law is holy. So why is it that the law doesn't save? The, the problem is not the law. The problem, Paul says, is me. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And so what Paul is saying is that the problem was not the law, the problem was good and holy and meant for my well-being, but the problem was my sinful nature interacting with that law and hating that law and breaking that law, leading me to death. The problem here is not the signs. The problem is the sinful heart of the person who looks upon the signs. John brings us back to the Old Testament in order to understand the reality of unbelief then and I think the reality of unbelief now. First he quotes from Isaiah 53 verse 1. And he points to the rejection of the suffering servant in terms of his teaching, his report, or his message, and the rejection of his power. Who has believed our report? And your arm. The arm of God, which was, in, which was implied the strength and the power of God by which he works powerfully in the world. And so he's taking this thing about the suffering servant and he is applying it to the ministry of Jesus. And so it's talking about the teaching of Jesus and about the signs of Jesus. Who has believed these things? They rejected the suffering servant. Isaiah saw this. Isaiah declared this. And in fact, here in John 12, we see that it comes to pass. This word by Isaiah is fulfilled by the unbelief of many that were there. And then John says this frightening sort of thing. Therefore, or because of this, they could not believe. It's not just that they refuse to believe, but he uses that word that we get dynamite from. Power. They did not have the power to believe. And if you heard that, and you're saying, Steve, I don't believe that. I don't think that's what the Scriptures teach. Well, what do the Scriptures teach here? It teaches that these people did not have the capacity, they did not have the ability to believe. That sinners in sin, are blind spiritually and unable to believe. He brings us to Isaiah again, but this time Isaiah 6. And the reality of Isaiah's ministry is also fulfilled through Jesus' ministry. Isaiah in Isaiah 6 is in many ways, but not always, a, a type of Christ. He's not a type of Christ in the fact that when he saw the glory of God, he was undone and needed to be forgiven. Jesus never had to be forgiven. But Jesus was sent by the Father, and his message, by and large, was not believed because it says here, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see 
with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. What's going on? Having initially rejected the truth, in other words, being in Adam, because they are in Adam, they are subject to the curse and judgment of God, and part of that is God blinding them and hardening them. That's a hard word, people. As I was uh, looking, at reading my commentaries, enjoying the beautiful day out on the picnic table uh, on Tuesday, at one point something caught my eye, and I looked, and I could see an A-10 up there in the sky, but only for a moment. Because the only reason I could see the A-10 was that the sun, at that particular angle, was striking the body of the plane, and it was flashing, so to speak. There was a flash of the metal that I could perceive. Then it was gone. The plane was still there. But I could not perceive the plane. In fact, a few moments later, I realized there were two planes, because then I could see them. The sign is still there. The sign is still communicates what God intends it to communicate. The problem is not with the sign. The problem is with the people and their ability to perceive. As it states in Romans 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The consequence of disobedience that was put upon them. R.C. notes on this. He says, Due to the rebelliousness of the people, God judged them with the inability to repent, even though the message of salvation was being compellingly presented right before their eyes, and I would include in the ministry of Jesus, the Son of God. If they cannot believe the words and the, and the signs of Jesus apart from grace, they certainly can't believe my words about those things apart from grace. They were unable to ponder the nature of his teachings because of their futile thinking. They were unable to ponder the nature of the signs because of their darkened minds. And this points us back to the reality that God Himself is the one who decides who will be drawn and who will be hardened by the Word and the signs. You can go right to Romans 9 and see this laid out again. And so... In verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The God of the Scriptures is a sovereign God. He's sovereign over, mercy, over salvation. He's sovereign over judgment. He's sovereign over everything. And if we see and believe it is not because we're smarter, we're better, we're more spiritual, 
or whatever it is, it is accountable only to the mercy of God upon us in electing us to salvation and sending the Holy Spirit to open our hearts. And so that we believe is not a a cause for pride, but humility. Because it is all of grace. And we don't deserve it. It's all of grace. And so the spiritual blindness of the people in John 12 and today is a result of their sin, which results in persistent unbelief. Let's move to something better. <laughs> Let's move to something a little more, not cheerful, but something that we're drawn to, something brilliant and glorious. Isaiah saw the glory of the eternal Son. There's this one sentence in the middle of this sec- of this passage that stands out to me and as I was pondering it and and being aided by commentaries and thinking about this, worship happened as it ought. John puts some pieces together that we sometimes kind of miss so that we really don't miss the point of all of this. Prophets in the Old Testament were brought by the Spirit of God, usually into God's throne room, And Isaiah was no exception. We see this clearly, of course, in Isaiah 6, because he says, In the year that King Hosea died, I was in the temple, and I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and His train filled the throne room. He was transported from the earthly temple into the heavenly reality and gazed upon the Holy One. And John wants us to know, to understand, to perceive that Isaiah spoke about these things precisely because he saw his glory. Who's the he? Or his? (laughs) Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. Way back in Isaiah 6, Way back in Isaiah 53, he saw it. He saw the eternal Son before He became incarnate. He saw the suffering servant who spoke for the Father. He saw His arm and He saw His rejection because then He spoke about that in a way that you and I cannot comprehend. He sees these things so that He might declare these things. He saw His arm, His power at work. He saw, in a sense, the miracles, the signs that Jesus would do. And yesterday morning I took a walk and uh, listened to some Tim Keller and I just went down and see, what's oh, the next sermon from Tim Keller on my podcast thing? Okay, here's what it is. And providentially, it happened to be Tim talking about John 12. Mostly next week's sermon text, but a little bit of this week's sermon text was snuck in there. Okay. And as he was talking about justice and judgment, which we'll get to next week, my mind started rolling. And 
the Jesus that shows up, of course, as we've talked about, the king, the Messiah, you know, sits upon David's throne. He's not the one that they wanted, and what they wanted was more akin to someone who would be like the Bolshevik or the French revolutions. For them, justice would be coming in and chopping off the heads of those bloody Romans. And that's not what Jesus does. His power, his arm, is revealed in his suffering, as well as in the signs that he performs. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, what we should understand is that Isaiah had a Trinitarian vision of God. As much as that is hard for us to kind of figure out. But he did see, according to John, who is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he saw the eternal Son in all of his glory before the incarnation and in his glory in his death. Which leads A.W. Pink to note that the one born in Bethlehem's manger was none other than the throne sitter before whom the seraphim worship. Isaiah beholds the glory of Jesus, and he was undone. He knew that he too was a sinner, a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. But the greater glory of God comes to pardon Isaiah and then to send him forth to make his own name known. How blessed are we when we don't see what Isaiah has seen, but believe, are pardoned, and sent forth. And so, Old Testament prophets saw and declared the glory of the eternal Son before He took on flesh. Thirdly, where you seek your glory matters. In the midst of this discourse on unbelief, John wants us to know that many did believe. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in or into him. Even some of the Jewish leaders apparently believed in Jesus, although they didn't admit it just yet. We'll see in Acts 6, verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, a little while ago, I was reading John, and I put on my Facebook status, why is it that we see, we give the Pharisees a hard time, and for good reason at times. But in John's gospel, who comes to faith? Some of the Pharisees come to faith. We don't see the priests coming to faith. Well, this, is, this would be the one place where we do see them, and of course, then in Acts, we see that some of the priests come to faith. But they didn't yet profess their faith. They didn't confess it before men yet. 
for fear of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were excommunicating people from the synagogue. So they know if they come out in support of Jesus, what's going to happen is they're going to be told to turn around and leave the synagogue on Sunday. Sorry, Saturday. I had a, a, one of those epical adjustment moments when I shouldn't have adjusted. Um, go home. You're not welcome here. Because you have sided with Jesus. In their minds, the great corrupter of the faith. And so we have to recognize that God's work was not done in them. It was not completed yet. They still suffered from the fear of man. John indicts them, in a sense, by saying, they loved the glory that comes from man. Did you catch that, though? There is a form of glory that comes from men. The problem is they loved it more than they love the glory that comes from God. There, and this points to the reality, there is a, you know, glory is about weightiness, and that kind of gets tied in with this idea of, of approval. There's a greatness, so to speak, that comes from men. An attribution of greatness, the giving of praise and approval. And the receiving of that glory from men can be intoxicating to us. And when we love it, it can be very self-destructive because it is so deceptive, because it will go away as soon as you stop delivering that which people expect. This week saw the departure of, of a, I guess, I guess prominent television personality. David Letterman retired. He's no longer on the Letterman show. And oddly enough, he had the highest ratings in 20-something years. <laughs> He's got the glory from men. Everyone all week was talking about how great David Letterman was, passing over his many faults and sins. Okay, it was hagiography. All right. Oh, the greatness of David Letterman. It's fleeting. We have celebrities. They blaze. There seems to be a weightiness about them. They seem to be more important than us ordinary hoi polloi kind of people like you and me. Okay? But let's not think that it's only worldly people who seek or can receive the glory of men. What's the context? Israel. Who's receiving this glory? The leaders. Why are they receiving this glory from men? Because of their external holiness. That's why. Because externally they seem to be godly people. God was not approving of their holiness because he saw their unbelief. It was a holiness rooted in unbelief and self-will, not in the reception of Jesus, the glorified one, who's righteous. They loved their own obedience and righteousness. 
and the praise that it brought from other people instead of the righteousness of Christ. They loved it more than the glory that comes from God. And so there, that ought to, again, think about that for a second. I take this to mean that there is a glory that comes from God, not just for Jesus, but for us. We touched on this briefly Wednesday night. When Paul talks about how these, these lightened momentary troubles are nothing to be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed for us. We're going to have a weightiness because the image of God will be perfected in us. We will perfectly reflect God's holiness and goodness and love and mercy and righteousness in a way that we can't do now. We will be great in a way that we are not now. And when we have this heart that loves the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from man, amazing things happen. 1 Timothy 1 talks about the fact that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so one of the things that happens if, if we're seeking that love, that, uh, that glory from God, we have the ability to say no to the glory that comes from men. In other words, we can say no to man-pleasing, just as Paul did in Galatians 1. We can endure the scorn of the world that cannot perceive the glory and greatness of Jesus Christ. Because we know that a greater glory that is greater than the light and momentary troubles of persecution, perhaps, is going to come to us. But right now, we have that problem of delayed gratification, which is an element of maturity. Children do not understand the concept of delayed gratification. I have money now, want to spend it now. I feel hungry now, I don't care if it's snack time or dinner time, I want food now. And part of the process of growing up is learning to delay gratification. I save for things so I can buy things. I'm hungry now, but I'm going to wait until dinner time to eat. All kinds of things in which we delay gratification, if we're maturing anyway. This is an element of spiritual maturity, the delayed gratification. We to experience present suffering in the hope of future glory, just as it talks about again in Romans 8. If we share in his sufferings, that we might also then share in his crown or his glory. And so if we choose the glory from God, we will join Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 13, outside of the city. We will be willing to endure the reproach that falls upon Jesus and therefore upon us because we think he's worth suffering for because he's that great. 
If you don't think He's great, you're never going to suffer for Him. You're never going to choose obedience when it crosses your own desire. If you never perceive Him as glorious and great, He's not worth serving and loving. That's how important it is that the Father would open our eyes to the glory of Jesus so that we would be, in fact, increasingly satisfied in Him. So that we turn away from the glory of the world for the glory that comes from God. But if you don't think there is one, you're not going to turn. So unbelief is unable to behold and ponder the glory of Jesus as the eternal Son who took on flesh to die and rise again for the salvation of His people. Unbelief focuses on the glory of men. It seeks approval from others instead of seeking the approval of God through faith in this glorified Jesus. Where's your focus? Are you pondering the glory of Jesus? Or have you rejected it as insufficient, as paling considered next to your expectations or the glory of mere men? Are you living in fear of people? Or have you joined Jesus outside the city of men, willingly bearing reproach with Him? We need the grace of God just as much as the apostles did and the ordinary disciples did in the first century. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that the Jesus that we are called to believe in is the same one that Isaiah believed in, the same one that John believed in, the same one that Paul believed in, the same one that so many of the fathers of our faith have believed in, many of whom have perished precisely because they believed in that Jesus. Because some in the power of the Spirit and some by the power of faith saw the glory of Jesus and realized He was worth more than all the earth. Grant us that kind of faith, Father, in a world that sees Jesus as ordinary, unimportant, or dangerous. Help us to see Him as great and glorious and necessary and essential. Desirable. In Jesus' name, amen.